Well, turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9. I mentioned this morning we would finish the book of Ezra tonight. I did forget one little thing that we're going to go back to part of chapter 9 next week and, and focus on that. We'll do all of chapter 9 and 10 tonight, but I am going to camp out on one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible in chapter 9, but we'll do that next time. One of the very kindest things that God can do for any person is to convince that person of a specific truth. This convincing must come by the power of the Holy Spirit because the the person won't believe it otherwise. And in fact, this person has believed just the opposite of this truth for an entire lifetime. But God, in his kindness, through his word and through the work of the Holy Spirit, may graciously convince a person of this truth. And in fact, if we could paint a picture, if you were to picture this person standing before God, finally made ready by the Spirit of God to listen, to hear this marvelous truth, there would be a a sense of anticipation that God is about to reveal something wondrous, something delightful to this person, something this person must know, something this person must grasp. And God will make it clear because he is always clear when he speaks. And we might even picture God opening his mouth, as it were, this delightful truth about to gush forth to thrill the heart of the hearer, to fill this now listening person with a truth that he must know, a truth that is life-changing. And then God speaks, but his words aren't original They're simply words he has already spoken, words he has already recorded in Scripture. And so the person facing God is on tiptoes, waiting for these glorious words. And as God opens his mouth, the person hears these gracious and kind words straight from the pages of Scripture. And God says to the person, you have become worthless. Now, if I'm that person, I'm going, what? Worthless? What about all the self-esteem that was taught to me from kindergarten up? What about all the nice things about me? What about all the nice things I've done? What about the fact that I'm really the best person I know? And and wait a minute. These were supposed to be gracious words. They're supposed to be kind words. That's what you said. They were going to be helpful. Well, in my made-up scenario here, of course, I'm quoting from Romans 3.12 The word of God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How kind it is of God to convince a person of this truth. How gracious to point out to the inner heart of this person the total depravity of his soul. The truth that the person who will not worship God in holiness and perfection, has become worthless. Why? Because to worship God is the chief end of mankind. That's the reason we exist. And this person might say, but wait a minute, I can't worship God in holiness and perfection if I'm worthless and if I've turned aside and if nothing good I do impresses God. Exactly. And God is gracious to convince many of this truth so that he can give the good news of the gospel, also found in Romans 3, Romans 3, 21. But now, that's the big shift. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here it is, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, here in Ezra 9, we're continuing our series in Ezra Nehemiah that we've named after that great verse in Lamentations 3, Great is thy faithfulness. And we named it this in all of Ezra Nehemiah because all through this book, the story of the return of Israel from exile, we're seeing that although Israel will ultimately fail in their attempt to set up the kingdom of God on earth, God continues time after time after time to be faithful to them. And you'll note that every message highlights one proof of God's faithfulness. And tonight's proof is this. God demonstrates man's shortfall. God demonstrates man's shortfall that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, as I've illustrated with our little made-up scenario, without the bad news, you can't have the gospel, the good news. God must reveal your depravity to you before you can see your need for grace and forgiveness through Christ. And this text tonight, Ezra 9 and 10, for all time reminds us of the fallen nature of mankind. That no matter how hard we try in our own power, we will always revert to evil without the power of God. It will happen every time. That Jeremiah 17 9 holds true for all people that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And so because of this theme, I'd like to approach this text from the vantage point of the sinner in need of grace. Because this is a tragic story of the horrific consequences of Israel ignoring the grace of God to return them to their land. Absolutely ignoring the grace that God poured out. And with that vantage point of the sinner, what I'd like to do tonight is give you four facts about sin. Four facts about sin that the sinner must acknowledge to be saved. The first fact about sin, your sin will be found out. Your sin will be found out. Ezra 9 verse 1 begins, after these things had been done. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. The story picks up here about four months after Ezra had returned to Jerusalem. It's about 458, 457 B.C. He's arrived in the fifth month of the year. Chapter 7 verse 9 tells us that. And these events happened in the ninth month. Chapter 10 verse 9 tells us that. What are these things that had been done? You recall that he came back from Persia with decrees from the king. Decrees that he was given to make certain that the Persian officials in all the area respected and supported the temple worship of the Jews. And how ironic is that? Now that the pagans in the area had been told and commanded by the king of Persia to respect Israel's worship of their God, it's found out that the Jews for the past number of years have been profoundly unfaithful to him. Chapter 9, verse 1, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. How had the Jews not remained separate as God's holy people in the worst way possible? They were doing something that could literally erase them as a people from planet Earth. Chapter 9, verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. This is even worse. The leaders of Israel are the worst offenders. 
they were marrying foreign women. This sin is called, is called faithlessness or unfaithfulness. It's a breach of personal loyalty, a breach of trust. It's spiritual adultery. This is a massive rebellion against God. God who had graciously returned them to their land to preserve Israel. And now they're, they're mixing the promised seed of Abraham with the foreign idol-worshiping peoples all around them. You recall that God had specifically mandated as part of his covenant with Israel in Deuteronomy 7.3, you shall not intermarry with foreign peoples, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. In fact, in God's providence just a few months earlier, this is likely one of the reasons that he had called and sent Ezra because God knew this abomination was happening and apparently none of the leaders of Israel were saying anything. Why would they not say anything? When the leadership is part of the problem, they'll never confront sin. When the leadership of God's people has rejected the authority of God as revealed in his word, then it's time for new leadership, isn't it? May God be merciful to any elder in the church of Jesus Christ who ever turns to a different authority other than scripture because as the leaders go, so goes God's people. But God exposes this sin. He exposes it in, in really dramatic fashion. And for us, I think it's important to remember that the sinner should never think he's going to pull one over on God. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times from unbelievers. Oh, when I get to heaven, I'll just explain to God that, uh, that, that I was really a pretty good person. And I'd like to ask the question, why are you assuming God will let you speak? Why are you assuming that you'll have that opportunity? The sinner should never think he'll pull one over on God. Psalm 139.2 says that God is the one who discerns the thoughts of, of men from afar. Romans 8.27 says that God searches the hearts of men. Numbers 32.23 says that the sinner can be certain that his sin will find him out. It will catch up. Ecclesiastes 12.14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. This word in Hebrew, every deed, it means the whole package, the whole thing, everything in your life. And not just the things that others saw, but every secret thing. There will be no hiding sin from God. There will be no excuses to be made. There will be no place to run, no place to hide. The first fact about sin, your sin will be found out. The second fact about sin, your sin must be confessed to God. Your sin must be confessed to God. Ezra 9, 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Ezra stunned. He tears his clothes in grief. He pulls out his hair. This is a sign of shame. And he sat appalled. It's a word that means to be in shock, to be in desolation, to be in hopelessness. It's the same idea as, as Job just sitting on the dust and ashes when everything he's had has been taken away from him. And his show of grief and shame are attracting a crowd. And there's a reason for this. Those three actions Tearing the clothes, pulling out the hair, and sitting stunned were actions all associated with one thing, the news of a sudden death of a loved one. That's how he's, he's acting. He's mourning what he perceived as the death knell for Israel, either from the intermarriages uh, watering down Abraham's line or from the coming judgment of God. His reaction is, we're going to get it. I just don't know from which direction. 
He sat there until the evening sacrifice, means about three o'clock in the afternoon. And so he sat stunned, no doubt his face and his head bleeding from having ripped his hair out, his clothes torn to shreds, not eating or drinking. And he knows there's only one hope, and that is to confess this sin to God on behalf of God's people. Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He went to the temple court in this horrible condition. He fell to his knees before God, and, and here is his prayer. And this prayer is so filled with importance, so filled with gravity and weightiness, but there's something noticeably missing from this prayer. Something missing. Beginning in verse 6, he spread out his hands to the Lord his God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to other shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands and with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. And therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. What is missing in this prayer? Ezra asks God for nothing. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for grace. He doesn't even ask for help. He makes no plea. He gives no supplication. Instead, it is a prayer of 100% confession and guilt. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into this prayer tonight because next week we'll look only at that prayer. But suffice to say that the clear themes of this prayer are shame and humiliation and embarrassment. 
He identifies as Israel's representative and acknowledges that this sin is so high and so deep and so wide that he says that their guilt has, at the beginning of the prayer, it's piled up all the way to the heavens, to the moon, to the sun, to the stars. An impossible amount of sin to forgive from a human vantage point. And he ends the prayer not asking for anything. He doesn't ask for mercy to not receive what is due, and he doesn't ask for grace to receive what is not due. He simply says, we are before you in our guilt. And he acknowledges the hopelessness of the situation. None can stand before you because of this. What, what, is, what would anybody say? Oh, we'll get it right this time. They've been saying that for 800 years. So if there's to be any hope of forgiveness any hope of reconciliation with God, there must be confession. This is an important part of the gospel. The sinner doesn't make a deal with God. God doesn't make deals with people because you have nothing he wants. You have nothing he needs. No deals, no bargaining, only confession. Jesus told a very telling story to illustrate the difference between someone trying to give their resume and make a deal with God and someone truly confessing sin. And you're familiar with this, but the, the, the comparison is just too good to pass up. Luke 18, verse 10, Jesus tells this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where somebody points at someone else? I'm glad I'm not like you. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus gives this conclusion. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That brings us to the next fact about sin. The first fact, your sin will be found out. Second fact, your sin must be confessed to God. The third fact, your sin is against God alone. Your sin is against God alone. And I want to point out something very important. Ezra's example here of not asking for anything shows that his main concern was not himself. His main concern was not even mercy and grace to Israel. His main concern that God's character, God's grace, God's holiness, God's love had been horribly violated, that God had been offended. That was his main concern. And never mind the fact that Ezra would have had every right to be personally offended at coming back to Jerusalem only to find the people he's supposed to be leading acting like pagans. Never mind the fact that the men of Israel had caused what would become a massively painful and costly family crisis across the land. And seeing the example of Ezra's penitence, now something wonderful happens. Chapter 10, verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But he says something interesting. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Shechaniah speaks up representing all who have gathered in weeping and sorrow over the sin. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, we've been unwise with our family lives. That's true, but he doesn't say it. We've been unfair even to those pagan women and to our children we've had with them. That's true, but he doesn't say it. We've been selfish and we wanted to have foreign women because they appealed to our lusts. That's true, but he doesn't say it. Although all these things are true, the sin is against God alone. He says, we have broken faith with our God. That's his focus. And this is such a key, important aspect of the gospel. You don't come to faith in Christ because you've messed up your life, although you may have. You don't come to faith in Christ because your relationships are bad, although they might be. You don't come to faith in Christ because you're unhappy, although you probably are. You don't even come to faith in Christ because you want to avoid the judgment of God, although that is the effect of coming to faith in Christ. No. You come to faith in Christ because you have offended the holy God who made you. You have violated his holiness. You have despised his righteousness. You have spurned his purity with your wicked, sinful deeds. And it is to God and God alone that you owe a debt of sin. Psalm 51 gives the account of King David confessing his sin after he committed both murder and adultery with the wife of Uriah, the man he murdered. He sinned horribly against Bathsheba, the woman, by taking advantage of her and by murdering her husband. He sinned horribly against Uriah by taking his life, ironically, a loyal soldier of David. He sinned horribly against the whole nation of Israel by being a terrible example of a king. He acted very unkingly. And certainly not like the man after God's own heart that God had called him previously. And yet, despite the fact that he sinned against both individuals and against the whole nation, none of these individuals and the whole nation, none of them are righteous and holy. And so the offense against them is less. And rightly so, David proclaims in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. His theology is right on. David sinned against other sinners. But the ultimate sin is against the one who's never sinned, the one who created David, the one who is the very definition of holiness and purity and righteousness. And so it's so important to understand that all sin is sin against God. Why? Because God created you to worship him and to glorify him. That is your purpose for existing. And sin is the opposite of worship. It is the opposite. It is rebellion and rejection of him, rejection of his perfection, rejection of his holiness. So what is someone to do? The one who, like our made-up example, has stood before God and been told and is now convinced you have become worthless That if you're unable to do that one thing for which you were created to glorify and worship God, then you have become useless, worthless. So what do I do? Well, that brings us to our fourth fact. Your sin must be rejected. Your sin must be rejected. Your sin will be found out. Your sin must be confessed to God. Your sin is against God alone. And what do you do about that? Your sin must be rejected. What does that mean? What that means is that your sorrow over sin must lead you to hate and despise your sin. 
that you're changing sides. You're no longer on the side of your sin. You're on the side of righteousness. And in coming to faith in Christ, this might involve some genuine life-altering changes to demonstrate true repentance. Repentance in becoming the believer often is much more than just saying, God, I'm sorry. Now, to be clear, this is not works-based salvation. You don't stop doing sinful things in order to gain God's favor. You turn away from your sin, your love of sin, your loyalty to sin, your fidelity to your sin, to demonstrate that God's grace has already been activated and that your heart has turned to him and to him, him alone. The sin of the Israelites had been to start watering down the people of Israel, intermarrying with the pagan peoples all around them, and even having a generation of children with them. So what would true repentance look like? You recall in verse 2, Shechaniah said, But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. What is their only hope? Chapter 10, verse 3. Shechaniah is still speaking. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Who would repent? What Shechaniah says here, those who tremble at the commandment, those who fear God with an internal reality of faith, those whose confession was genuine, even to the point of putting away, meaning to send back to their own lands, their foreign wives and their children. And Shechaniah bravely tells Ezra, take charge of this. We're with you. Even when you cause us pain, we will repent. But Ezra wasn't done mourning yet. He's still grieved over the faithlessness of God's people, and he continues in spiritual humility. Verse 6, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. He's mourning. He's in fasting and prayer. This reminds us that the repentant person should never avoid true repentance just for fear of the consequences. But, but if I come to faith in Christ, don't you realize what I'm going to have to do? What I'm going to have to give up? Yes. Jesus said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The person should repent anyway. And the truly repentant had something very difficult to do. Verse 7, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Ezra was now going to hold the entire group of the returned exiles responsible, and he was going to clean house. Anybody who doesn't show up to this meeting, they forfeit all their property, and they're kicked out of the nation. The proclamation is severe, but the situation is dire, and all the people responded. And what a scene when they gathered together. God wouldn't even give them decent weather. Verse 9, And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. 
And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. God wasn't going to give sunshine on a day like this. Ezra stood up and he proclaimed their guilt and what true repentance would entail. Verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Verse 12 records that with one voice, all the people agreed to obey the Lord. In verses 13 through 15, the people brought a practical concern to Ezra. It was wintertime, the rainy season, and it would take some time to accomplish this. And so the people proposed a period of three or four months to investigate exactly who had married foreign wives and had children with them. Verse 16, Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And boy, does their investigation turn up some heartbreaking news. First of all, the righteous high priest who had originally returned with the exiles, Jeshua, he had sons and he had nephews. And in verse 18, four of his sons are named. An unnumbered quantity of other male family members had all married foreign women. Sadly, the sons of the Levites, the temple leaders, were guilty. Verse 23, the temple musicians were guilty. The temple gatekeepers were guilty. Verse 24, all the people most at the center of the worship of God were guilty. But they repented. Verse 19, they pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. This was such a thorough investigation. The rest of chapter 10 lists specific men who had committed this grave sin. And that list has been preserved now for a couple of thousand years. All the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 44. The summary, all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. Now this does bring up a delicate subject. Someone might say, this is cruel. To make these men send their wives and children away? Let me give you four quick arguments to refute that viewpoint. And then we have a longer discussion that becomes necessary from this text. The first quick argument, verse 14, says that the wrath of God was upon the people until they repented. This is chapter 10, verse 14. And so they were purifying Israel. They didn't have a choice. This is the Old Testament equivalent of church discipline. That we don't leave the church in an unpurified state. The second quick argument to refute the viewpoint of cruelty, the purity and holiness and the continuation of God's people of Israel was a much higher priority than the individual temporary happiness of these men and even of their foreign wives and children. God had promised to Abraham to make his descendants a great nation, one that would bring us our Savior. But if that nation, for all intents and purposes, ceases to exist as a people, then the Abrahamic covenant from a human standpoint can't be fulfilled. There's a third reason this is not cruel. Don't think of these women and children as somehow merely innocent victims. 
The women were pagan idol worshipers, no doubt teaching their children to be the same. If the husbands didn't have the spiritual fortitude to obey the Lord by marrying only Jewish women, they were not likely leaving their homes with pagans either. There's no record of any of the women having converted to true faith in Yahweh. And there's one more argument, the fourth argument. The text doesn't tell us what God did with these women and children who were sent away. What God did with them is God's business. But we do know of one time that a wife of sorts and her child was sent away to preserve the purity of Abraham's people. You've probably already guessed Hagar and her son Ishmael were sent away. And what did God do for them? God spoke to Hagar and promised to care for her and her son graciously, and he, he did so. So to accuse God of cruelty is unwarranted. But the bigger elephant in the room here, the larger discussion that we have to have for a moment, is the issue of divorce. Now, I haven't used that word yet, but that's what's happening here. A massive divorce of dozens of marriages. And that, of course, brings up the question, but doesn't God hate divorce? That seems to be the puzzle we have. Now, I want to look at this for a moment. Turn to the very end of the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We talked about this several years ago in our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But this text screams that we revisit this. And we'll take a bit of time to do so now. Malachi 2. We'll look specifically at verse 16 and some of the surrounding verses. This is a touchy and emotional subject. And I understand that. But truth is always our best and really our only option. Now, this morning, we talked extensively about Bible translation. And in very, very, very rare instances, a traditional translation maintains some strength that is just too traditional for most translators to get rid of. For example, as we talked about this morning, the translation of Yahweh as Lord in the Old Testament has been going on for centuries. Now, just a little note here, in your essentially literal Bibles, as we talked about this morning, there are no translation issues or questions upon which a major issue of doctrine or salvation rests solely. Not one. The English Bible is as close to a 100% accurate translation as any ancient document in history, and there isn't even really a close second. But in very rare instances, a traditional translation maintains itself. It slips in. And one of those is the traditional translation of Malachi 2.16, attributing to God as saying, I hate divorce. Now, I feel it's necessary for us to take this digression because Ezra 10 presents us with, with a puzzle, with a conundrum. If God hates divorce, then why is his wrath upon the Jews until they divorce their foreign wives? Listen to a comparison of some various English translations of Malachi 2.16. The King James Version says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, or divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. New American Standard, 1995 update. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. The New King James Version. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And it covers one's garment with violence. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's an essentially literal version I didn't mention this morning. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. 
And what does the ESV say here in verse 16, chapter 2? For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but we have to understand something. The connection between Ezra 10 and Malachi is there's a very clear bridge here. What was happening when Malachi was written? Malachi is also written to post-exile Jews. That if they want God's blessing, they must be faithful to obey him. And in chapter 2, God gives two lines of evidence of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness in this post-exile era, the time after the return from Babylon and Persia. The first line of evidence, he indicts them for their illegal, guess what, intermarriages with pagans. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so first, he indicts them for illegal intermarriages. But then he condemns them for illegal divorce unjustifiable divorce. Now, what's the bridge between Malachi 2 and Ezra 10? Listen carefully. It's not just that the men of Ezra 10 were marrying foreign wives. They first were getting rid of their first wives in order to marry these women they were attracted to. They got rid of the wives of their youth. They got rid of the wives when they were young. What does that tell us, by the way? It tells us that these are a bunch of dirty, middle-aged, and old men taking young wives because they're prettier than the wife they've spent the last 20 or 30 years with. In verse 13, God points out the natural consequences of the men of Israel divorcing their Israelite wives to marry pagans. Verse 13, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Then God asks the question that the men of Israel should have been asking, why does he not? In other words, why is God not receiving their sacrifices, not receiving their worship, or put it in terms we can understand, why is God not hearing my prayers? Why is he not working in my life? Why am I not seeing any blessing from him at all? God answers his own question. In verses 14 through 16, that these men have been divorcing their wives, being faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Okay, stop right there. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. You know what that means? It means he was at the wedding. He was there. He witnessed the vows. He witnessed the joy. He witnessed the happiness of this young couple ready to obey the Lord and be faithful to his covenant and to have children and have grandchildren. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And here he speaks of himself at the wedding again. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. In other words, did God not bless this union and and give them this spiritual oneness? Well, all the way back to Genesis 2, the one flesh nature of marriage. And what was the one God seeking? 
godly offspring to have children that will worship me. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The act of divorcing their wives to marry pagan women, worshipers of false gods, compromising the spiritual unity and the devotion to God of the whole nation of Israel, they acted faithlessly and treacherously. This is referred to five times in verses 10 through 17. Treachery, 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 treachery. Under God's covenant care, God's special people were ignoring him. And they were diluting their set-apart holiness immediately after having been rescued by God from exile. Do you see why Ezra doesn't ask for anything? It's hopeless. But I'm going to assert to you that the Bible does not teach God hates divorce. And I'm going to give you three reasons for this argument. The first one we'll call the translation reason. The translation reason, and I, I'm, I don't know how to any other way to do this, but we have to dive into a little bit of technical analysis, if that's okay. But the key is to accurately understanding the Hebrew text. The very first word, for, translated in the ESV, this is the Hebrew particle, key. It can be uh, translated, indeed, for, when, or if. Because verse 16 has an implied if-then statement, look all the way back at verse 2. This is where it really starts. Verse 2 of chapter 2, if you will not listen. That's where it starts. It starts this long if-then statement. So the syntax gives preference to if in verse 16. The particle is grammatically connected with the Hebrew word, which means to hate, or in the ESV here, does not love. The verb form in this verse is a third-person singular, he hates or he hated the verb form here the hebrew word which means to dismiss to let go in this context refers specifically to divorce and this produces a literal translation if he hates and divorces now based on the immediate context of verse 15 the wife of your youth we can imply if he hates and divorces his wife now, what's important to note in examining this translation is that the traditional translation of I hate divorce, which then becomes the Christian slogan, God hates divorce, doesn't accurately reflect the text at all. And in fact, it changes the meaning completely. The verb is a third person singular, not a first person singular. It's he, or as the ESV puts it, the man. What does that mean? It means that this is not God-hating divorce. This is the man-hating, or not loving in the ESV, his wife that he married when he was young. God isn't the one doing the hating here. The sinner is. So the second reason, this is not saying God hates divorce. We'll call this one the context reason. The context reason, the man who demonstrates hate for his wife by divorcing her, and in the context here, in order to marry a pagan idol worshiper, he covers his garment. Now, what does it mean by his garment? This is figurative language referring to the moral state of a person. It's something they've put on metaphorically. And he covers himself with a garment that is violent. What, is it, what does this mean? He covers his garment with violence. We would say it this way. He has blood on his hands. He's done violence to his marriage. He's done violence to his wife. He's done violence to his God. 
It's cold-blooded. It's a corrupt violation of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate. And listen to this. A, A woman who has married a man in this culture, in this time, is depending on him for everything. There are no jobs she can go get. And when he divorces her, he essentially sentences her to being destitute. And he robs her of everything that he was supposed to provide. Blessing and provision and love and protection. But he doesn't protect her from the worst enemy of all, his own sin. All because he lusted after a good-looking younger foreign woman. This is treacherous. That's the context. There's a third reason this is not saying that God hates divorce. We'll call this one the intertextual reason. The intertextual reason. Intertextuality of the Bible refers to the fact that the Bible not only repeats itself, but it explains itself, and by so doing, it never contradicts itself. Let me say that again. Intertextuality says that the Bible not only repeats itself, but it explains itself, and it never contradicts itself. God cannot be condemning all divorce wholesale here, and a simple search of Scripture will prove that. Ezra chapter 10 is proof of that. Matthew 5 indicates one exception that may lead to justifiable divorce. That's unrepentant adultery. 1 Corinthians 7 indicates a second exception that may lead to justifiable divorce. That's unrepentant abandonment of the marriage, whether that means physical abandonment out of the home or creating an abusive, horrific, unlivable situation in the home. That is abandonment as well. But these are rare. In Matthew 19, Jesus condemned the wicked leaders of Israel for their misuse of the divorce clause in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, for their own selfish purposes. Why? Because they were doing the same thing that the men in Malachi 2 and Ezra 10 were doing. If Malachi 2.16 said God hates divorce, it's almost certain Jesus would have used that text instead of giving the right and complex interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. God is denouncing unjustifiable divorce, but not justifiable divorce. He's made provision for that in rare cases of a desperate need for mercy, a desperate need for help. And because of the traditional translation of Malachi 2.16, the long-standing Christian slogan, God hates divorce, has hurt countless numbers of people in the church. It's become such an ingrained part of church tradition It's a statement that appears to condemn all divorce with no thought of who is innocent or at least the less guilty party. And this has been a a huge contributing factor to churches and individual Christians looking askew at believers either in the middle of a divorce or already divorced as if 100% of the time divorce is the wrong thing to do. Malachi 2.16 cannot be used to give a comprehensive view of God on divorce Of course, neither does it mean that we open the floodgates to divorce for any reason. Not at all. Now, the text of Ezra 10 doesn't say this outright. But Malachi 2.15, and what was the one God seeking godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. What does this imply? This implies that these men were not only expected to put away, to divorce their foreign wives, to get rid of those wives and their children, send them back to their land. They were also expected, if at all possible, to go make amends with the wife of their youth and take her back. That's repentance. 
Now, this isn't a prescription for all such similar cases today. In this particular case, the purity of the nation of Israel was at stake, a much larger issue than just the individual situations. But doesn't this illustrate the absolute mess that selfish sin causes? Absolute mess. Jesus was very clear in Mark eight thirty four that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Your sin must be rejected. I'd like to spend our last few moments applying what we've learned tonight. I want to have you turn back with me for a moment to Ezra 10. Ezra 10, it's actually an excuse to get you to Nehemiah 1, but it's one page across from each other. Of course, as we talk about sin and repentance, that draws our thoughts to how you as a believer in Christ, the one whose sins have already been forgiven, how do you grow in Christ-likeness because of this? The Jews did repent. They did the hard act of making things right in their homes and restoring the religious purity of Israel. And from another text, we see that they were already under what they called the wrath of God in Ezra 10, 14. What, why were they, according to Malachi 2, coming to the altar and weeping and crying and asking God, why aren't you receiving our prayers, our sacrifices, our offerings? How did they know God wasn't receiving it? Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Nehemiah 1, verse 3, And they said to me, that is Nehemiah, The remnant there in the province who, has survived, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. God was not showing them favor. The repairs they had already done were, were, were torn down. They were taken down. Now, what's the lesson for us as believers in Christ? You, you can never lose your salvation. We know that from Scripture, but you can't expect the blessing of the Lord in your life when you're making a conscious choice to rebel against Him. You can't. 1 Peter 3, 7 gives the example of a cruel and cold husband whose prayers have been put on heavenly ice, so to speak. They're not being answered. James 5, 15 gives the example of a believer who is sick, apparently because of unrepentant sin. It doesn't teach that all illnesses do the unrepentant sin, but that's one possibility. The believers in the Corinthian church were getting sick and even dying because of their recalcitrant disobedience. Now, you notice the pattern in Ezra 9 and 10. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Confessing sin to the Lord, yes, but taking steps to turn away from that sin as well. And the thought of confession and repentance, of course, leads us to the one place that makes that possible, and that is the road to the cross. How does this text in Ezra 9 and 10 take us on the road to the cross? I think it's important to make this clear. We can't equate this event on an exact one-to-one -one level with personal salvation, individual salvation. That's not the focus of the passage, national repentance is. But it does illustrate very well that when someone truly repents, when they come to faith in Christ, repentance might be messy and it might take some time. The consequences of previous sin might linger even for a lifetime in some cases, but the cost is worth it. If somebody comes to faith in Christ and they have horrible uh, consequences of sin following them, it, those don't just go away. Prior to salvation, Christians have abused their bodies, which might have lifetime consequences. Christians have wrecked relationships, which may have consequences. Christians have been married to non-believers or maybe still married to non-believers, which has consequences. 
Christians may have criminal or immoral backgrounds that still knock at the door. By the way, this is why it's so important to pray for the salvation of our children so that they don't take the consequences of their sin into their life as adults. What does this say to the person considering Christ, though? It says, repent, turn away, no matter the consequences, no matter the cost. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. By the way, one of the signs on the road to the cross would read something like this. Without the new covenant in Christ, without the Holy Spirit's indwelling people, people will fall back into individual sin. Without the new covenant, without the Holy Spirit, you will fall back into individual sin. Nehemiah records in Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 23, that the Jews, guess what, did it again. They married foreign women and had children who were taught only the foreign language, culture, and pagan practices of the nations of their mothers. And in fact, Nehemiah 13 Nehemiah is so upset that he beat up some of the men and ripped out some of their hair and forced them to take an oath of repentance. That's evangelism, apparently. (laughs) But without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're powerless against the sin nature that would dominate us. But that's part of the good news, isn't it? That you as a believer in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can choose not to sin and you have the power to do so. And on the front of the consequences of sin, those leftover effects of sin, the text of Ezra 9 and 10, it drives us pointedly further in Scripture, doesn't it? It drives us to look ahead all the way to Christ's coming kingdom because there's a glorious promise to the believer attached to the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. Acts 3.21 says that when Christ returns, he will restore all things. Revelation 21.4, very familiar to you. For the former things have passed away. What does that mean? That the lasting, lingering consequences of sin will all be dealt with perfectly. Every last loose end tied up. And that's a glorious thought. Remember our made-up scene in which a person learns the truth, you have become worthless? Isn't it gracious of God to reveal your depravity to you so that you might turn to Christ? Turn to him for forgiveness and receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who transforms you into a qualified worshiper of God. And now you have worth. Why? Because the New Testament says you are in Christ and he is ultimately worthy. My prayer for all of you, I I pray this for you frequently, is that you would see your opportunities around you to spread the gospel, that you would be brave And you would be courageous to tell those that you love, tell those around you, you have a sin problem and you must do something about it. And my prayer also is that God would be gracious and reveal to any amongst us who has been faking it. Jesus promised it would happen, but I'm praying that the Lord reveals that to you as well, that the gospel would penetrate your heart. Let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, thank you for this text. It is so convicting. It is so sobering to see what men left to their own devices without the power of the Holy Spirit will sink to. To get rid of the women that they pledged themselves to. And as God pictured himself as literally at these weddings, rejoicing with them, bonding together with the Spirit. And then for them to get rid of them so that they could have fun. The sin of mankind knows no bounds. 
And I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is hearing this right now and is coming to the realization by the power of the Holy Spirit that their sin has no bounds, that they are just as wicked as those that we've spoken of. Let this be the moment that they bend the knee, that they cry out for mercy, that they are like the tax collector that Jesus spoke of. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. I pray that we would, as those who already follow Christ, be so very thankful for our salvation because the the horrific nature of the sin of those that we've read about, that was us. We are no better and probably worse. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you our gratitude. And we would strive to give you our obedience in love. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.